0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Climactic Curation. This is the July edition, or also known as the Solutions Showcase. I am your host, Mark Spencer. I'm the publisher and founder of the Climactic Collective, a trans-Tasman podcast network by and for the climate community. Now, I used to say the Australian climate community, but you'll notice that extra trans-Tasman has snuck in there, and that's because we got something nice to announce and sort of celebrate and that is the Climactic Collective is now indeed by and for Australia and New Zealand um, you will, if you check out Climactic's feed right now there, I won't be playing an excerpt of it today but uh, you'll notice we've now featured a, a Kiwi show called This Climate Business, you'll notice that I'm starting to do interviews around New Zealand uh, and around my my neck of the woods here in Tamaki Makoro Auckland and we're really going to show on the climactic collective all the ways that yes new zealand might indeed be ahead of australia in the race because yes scomo it is a race to reduce emissions to make the climate safe again to live in and to protect the future new zealand may indeed probably more than may is ahead of australia in many regards but i also want to shed a light ...on the fact that New Zealand is by no means perfect in this regard. We have much more we need to do here in your little little cousin, Australia. And uh, just look at all that size and power and potential Australia has... ...to be a force for good through the climate crisis. So hopefully, in that Anzac spirit, we can band together again... ...Australia and New Zealand for the biggest struggle of our generation... And potentially many generations to come as we face the climate crisis together as brothers sisters family across the tasman and yeah so what is this climactic curation business all about that's a little bit about the climactic collective curation is a chance to celebrate the best of what was published on the collective in any given month the idea, the idea initially with curation was I would do these monthly, these live episodes. We'd, It would become a regular thing. People would know when to tune in, to ask questions, to kind of catch up on things they've, they they might have missed. Unfortunately, that hasn't quite happened much yet. And uh, there's definitely a lot of, of catching up I need to do in order to make it that monthly thing. But... Why July has a Climactic curation episode is, for the first time, Climactic went the whole month of July with a focus, with a theme, with a topic, and that focus was solutions. So Climactic is a very varied network. Uh, We'll talk to people of all stripes, from all walks of life, from the grassroots up to the leaders of political parties, people who lead major ngos people doing amazing big projects but also people doing the hard yards every weekend with their local tree planting group um but what we always what we've we've never really done with climactics, kind of stick on one theme for very long and we'll talk to people about climate grief and climate anxiety and and trauma and the horror of what we're going through and then next week we'll bounce to something completely different so rather than sticking for a whole month with just the, the mental weight of the climate crisis and everything that's going wrong, instead, I just I challenged myself to stick to solutions and stick to positive stories about climate for a whole month. Um, now, we had a real uh, a real head start on this um, with the launch of a new show on the Climactic Collective uh, in late June. A show called Regionomics Down Under was about to launch on Climactic, and this show is specifically all about solutions. It's about kind of those shovel-ready projects, the commercial scale, the no-government-required climate solutions and and real um, benefits to to society we can have right now if—well, no ifs or buts. Like, things that are basically already happening or things that we can just choose to do ourselves— um regionomics down under has been in the works now for years uh lee baker one of my first friends that i met through climactic uh one of the first sort of early boosters of the show um has been working on this been thinking about this for yeah three years um she was the first repeat guest of climactic and i thank her so much for coming on and then coming back and then coming back again um and she's a wonderful collaborator and it's so great to to have her on the network and I really want to share with you now the intro, short, few-minute-long sort of trailer for Regionomics Down Under, what the show is all about, and where it's going to go from here, because uh, she's released an episode, it was very good, there's more in the hopper, I think, coming out very soon. So I'm going to get myself all set up here, I'll let my music do a bit of a fade, and then we will get into it with this intro to Regionomics Down Under. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions at all, just sing out in the Facebook livestream or over on Twitter. I'll do my best to check that while this uh, clip is playing. All right. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Climactic Curation.
1: Welcome to Regionomics, Dan Arnold. Welcome to Regenomics Down Under, a podcast about the wealth of no government required climate solutions already happening on the ground, both in Australia and around the world. It's a story of how citizen innovators are turning their local and regional economies regenerative. Why make this podcast? Even today. Way too many of the common conversations around global warming still target two rather depressing, repetitive themes. The first theme is all about how big government and big business need to make big changes, especially about what they're not doing that they darn well should. The second theme is about how so-called ordinary people, consumers, small businesses, communities, need to play their part by using less or by investing in specific, often expensive solutions like solar panels and EVs. Both themes are important, but it's like discussing a vanilla slice and only talking about the pastry on the top and the bottom. These two themes ignore the sticky, messy, tasty feeling that's most of the vanilla slice, the good bit, the solutions, the actionable solutions we already have. Global warming is a symptom, a symptom of centuries of degenerative systems and practices that go back beyond the industrial revolution. The symptom isn't the problem. The solution is a smarter goal. Regeneration. Making systems that work for 100% of the world. People, animals, ecosystems, oceans, the whole world. When you start looking, you find that thousands of innovators have been working on solutions for decades. And those solutions are being scaled. So today, reversing global warming has lots of accessible actions, actions around reinventing, redesigning and rebuilding the systems that deliver our products and services so that those systems regenerate communities and regenerate ecosystems. It's a game that works beautifully at local and regional levels. It's not just a game for the big boys and It's a game that thousands of individuals, communities, councils and local businesses are already playing. All around Australia, businesses, individuals, communities, not-for-profits, in regions are doing some pretty awesome things. In this podcast, we're going to explore what's happening, where it's happening and how it's happening. Plus, we'll talk about the frameworks the modelling, the evidence, the new knowledge and the ancient wisdom behind the solutions so that you can find your best way to be an active player instead of a worried watcher. You're listening to Regionomics Down Under, a podcast about the climate solutions happening today.
0: a good transition, resizing and doing all the things. And okay, I'm back, I'm back in the studio. Thank you very much, Lee Baker, for that introduction to regionomics down under. I really, really love the name. I love it. it's all about regional, regenerative, economic solutions. Um, it's brilliant. It's, it's a great concept for a show. I can't wait to hear more of it. And I know that, you know, you were up in your house And the Danadongs recording that, and it takes great, great courage, and it's just, um, it makes me so happy. (laughs) So, solutions. Of all months to be talking about solutions, we picked July. Now, um, there's going to be many points as we look back on the early 21st century in a few decades from now. But it really feels like 2020, for obvious reasons of the C word, Uh, is already going to have quite a big chapter in history books. But 2020 and 2021, um, Australia with the Black Summer bushfires, the horrific California bushfires, and then, yeah, the last few weeks of the floods across Europe, China. We had them terribly here in New Zealand. And then the heat dome effect across the U.S., the Western United States, and Canada leading to incredible fires in such an an early part of the fire season. Um, It's a hell of a time to be talking about about solutions. I struggled this month, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I'm sure many people following any level of the news found it very difficult to keep up with the level of tragedy, uh, loss of human life, and in sort of terror of tracking the extreme weather events that have been happening all over the world. So I'm grateful that July, I was especially trying to find positive stories and trying to find the good stuff. Um, So I've got a clip about how bad July was for a lot of reasons, and it does come from the BBC, but I'm just going to, foreshadow that i'm not going to play that one yet i'm going to play you something else first sort of stay on the positives and to actually zoom out a bit and look at some of the really the things the things you don't hear from the news coverage or the things you hear a little bit about like hey at the g7 meeting of you know international of like the the peak international group of seven meetings um there was some progress made on climate but what was it? You don't really hear that, that part in the news. So luckily, there's a podcast out there called The Sustainable Futures Report from Anthony Day, who's been doing this show for like six years in the UK. He's got a wonderful diction and delivery and way of speaking. I'm so grateful that Anthony found Climactic and found me through this great platform called Audrey. And I'm really happy we got to feature this episode of his show. And I'm really stoked to play you a couple minutes now. Enjoy this episode of Sustainable Futures Report. Subscribe using the link in the show notes. Enjoy.
2: This week, Climate Action staged the Climate Innovation Forum 2021, a three-day event. I got a press pass and I'll share my review of some of the sessions. Also on this week's agenda, more on the nuclear plant at Taishan, extreme weather in North America, shortfalls in the UK and the future of the Sustainable Futures Report. Hello, I'm Anthony Day and this is the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 2nd of July 2021. I've just been listening to a discussion with mark carney united nations special envoy on climate and former governor of the bank of england and noel quinn of hsbc at the climate innovation forum 2021 here's a summary of what i picked up carney and quinn commented on the g7 communique which identified 2021 as a turning point in the campaign against the climate crisis unfinished business they said more to be done was victory achievable it has to be they said in the last 12 to 18 months they said that they detected a change in mood towards the urgency of the climate crisis there was a positive attitude now positive action was needed the next five to ten years we'll see a new industrial revolution 10 years asked the chair won't that be too late well five to ten years Mark Carney said that we faced a fundamental rewiring of the economy, which would take the rest of the decade. It's now seen in business as the top strategic issue, at least once the consequences of Covid are sorted out. The execution of plans towards achieving net zero is crucial. Many financial institutions are still analysing how to achieve net zero and exactly what it means. They don't want to back technologies until they are certain that they are the right technologies and they're therefore not ready to make new investments. But there's no doubt that considerable investment will be needed and needed urgently. Major industries are faced with fundamental change. A greater understanding of new technologies and new mindsets is essential to unlock the investment to make change happen. Apparently, someone at Joe Biden's recent climate conference had said convincing customers of all this was very difficult. However, Noel Quinn of HSBC said that customers of his bank all over the world were becoming proactive, recognising the need for change and engaging with the bank and asking for support. COVID has demonstrated how fragile the economy is. Major industries are convinced of the need to change, And SMEs, as part of their supply chains, also recognise the need to change. These smaller companies need help, either from government or from their customers, to achieve the transition. The TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, is aiming for common standards for measuring carbon footprints and climate-related data. So far, 90 central banks have come on board with this, and insurance companies and pension funds are following on. Questions followed the discussion, how to build a net zero investment portfolio. Financial institutions should map out a pathway to net zero, assess each investment according to its nearness to the path, and maybe drop those that are not going to succeed. Is the aviation industry a stranded asset? Almost certainly without innovation. Long-haul flying needs sustainable fuels, which have been shown to cut carbon by 80%. There needs to be a commitment from the industry to give the fuel suppliers the confidence to make the investment needed to deliver these new fuels. Aren't politicians just thinking of electoral cycles before anything else? Mark Carney quoted an example of his native Canada, where people had voted for parties committed to introducing a carbon tax. He thought the weight of public opinion was changing. Noel Quinn said he thought there was change as well. Personally, I can't see net zero and the climate crisis creating much interest at the Batley and Spen by-election coming up this week. How can we educate consumers? asked another delegate. Apparently Sir David King, former Chief Scientific Advisor, has said that governments have not been clear enough. There is private sector innovation. For example, the ability to track carbon through a complete supply chain is being developed. Should the government be more assertive? On the one hand, the government has withdrawn a grant scheme at only four days' notice. But on the other hand, it has created an environment to encourage change, like the ruling that fossil fuel cars may not be sold after 2030. The government needs to work with the private sector to define the signals and regulations that should be set up. The final question was whether regulations and targets will be the key driver towards net zero, or whether it would depend on the hope and passion of entrepreneurs and business leaders. There was a strong response that hope and passion are no use without a plan. An organisation should decide what it will look like as a net zero organisation and determine where it is on the road to net zero. Both Carney and Quinn agreed that this is an existential threat. It's about human survival. Is it too late? asked the chair. It's not too late yet, said Mark Carney. When is it too late? Let's not find out.
0: Indeed. Thank you very much to Anthony Day for allowing me to share the full episode of that with you, the listeners of Climactic. Um, it's a truly great show he's doing. He has got a great way of zooming out and catching you up on, on all the news you might have probably missed unless you're a real news hawk. Um, it's, I think it's a weekly show. It's very good. You should check it out. Um, I have become a supporter of Anthony's. I would love, at some point in the near future, I'd love it if Anthony got a mic, because he's recording that into his iMac, and he sounds great, and his way of speaking is just... You'd, you'd never know he's reading. its I, I love it. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think it's its definitely its good content, and it deserves uh, an upgrade in terms of the hardware. So... There's my my polite call out to you, Anthony. I'd love to hear you speaking into a, a Blue Yeti microphone or even something very cheap like my Samson Q2U. I think it would be great while on the topic and uh, you know picking up on something said there about how the uk has a pledge to phase out all fossil fuel car sales uh canada as well uh within this month has made that pledge i think it's 2030 is their target uh, the uk is being 2035 um the question is what do we do with all the chassis all the all the cars we've already got and for people who love or you know people for people who need different styles of cars than your little EV city cars than your sort of more upmarket Tesla sedans what if you need a Range Rover if you need a, a sturdy four-wheel drive truck EV what do you do well luckily there is an answer and it comes from an unexpected place, and it's a one-of-a-kind program in Australia. And it is probably a blueprint for a lot more, like, this is what schooling should look like going forward, especially in 2021, especially in response to the climate crisis. And and in response to STEM levels, the, the engagement of young people with science, technology, engineering, and maths being quite low... Um, here's an amazing little story from Robert McLean's Climate Conversations, and this one is, yes, all about a pilot program from Bendigo, Victoria, and I, and yes, I don't actually have more setup than that, so you're gonna hear it sort of dropped right into the action here, where this group of, uh, students is building, rebuilding a Range Rover to be fully electric, that's right, and an electric 80s range rover
1: someone designed someone drawn up a plan for the project like do you know what the car's going to look like when it's finished
0: uh, look we um,
3: we haven't we've okay so we we've, we've actually got a project plan and timeline um, but in terms of what it will look like it will look like a standard 1982 range rover except that when you open the bonnet there'll be a great big battery box sitting on top of a um, a Tesla motor and a a re-engineered transfer case that lowers the torque and power to something that the Range Rover axles can, can handle and that'll bolt straight onto the prop shaft. So there's a great deal of mechanical simplicity Compared to a conventional vehicle, because we've done away with the engine, the the, um, the you know the transmission, uh, the the fuel lines, the fuel tank, and all of the ancillary services that were originally driven by belts, and replaced those all with electrical systems. Um, there's a fair to even chance it'll have an air suspension, so a um you know electric compressor driving an air suspension because that makes it safer. As a rental vehicle, we think that's important when you sit in the car. The major difference that you'll notice from a Range Rover Classic of that era is that there's no transmission controls at all. It'll just be a a carpeted transmission hump and there'll be a a little black box that essentially controls um, all of the systems, several different driving modes, and we'll integrate the original switching into systems where we can, um, but we will have to you know re engineer things like the um the gauges because the fuel has to be converted to show charge. It'll have a Defender pedal or a recent model Defender throttle pedal because that it needs a, um, a digital output and, a, and an analogue pedal can't do that. Um, and uh, we have to re-engineer things like the power steering and the braking system and the, the HVAC for heating and cooling as well.
2: So it'll um, still be a four-wheel drive though?
3: It will still operate as a four-wheel drive. Absolutely. Um, so we'll have a Tesla
1: uh, motor front and back,
3: or one one Tesla motor, but with a re-engineered torque reduction transfer case that connects directly to uh, the uh, the front and rear prop shaft.
0: Doesn't that sound cool? I want a nineteen eighty two Range Rover with a Tesla motor in it. That's just. Why not? Um, I had a 67 a Ford Mustang Fastback go past me the other day, and I thought, boy, I'd love one of those that's an EV. Let's not let all these car bodies, like, rust away. Like, it's just it's going to make EVs so desirable. Um, and, and school kids being actually able to build one of these things from scratch as part of their schooling and then entering the job market with that understanding, those skills... The ability to remove the old, dirty, inefficient, outdated, completely redundant and polluting internal combustion engines out of vehicles, dropping in electric parts that are so much more simple and so much more durable and able to just go and go and go and go. Uh, it's it's amazing. Like, we're all very worried about, well, the, the industry, the car industry is worried about what are mechanics going to do with these vehicles that don't need as much maintenance. Well... We can retrofit a whole bunch of vehicles. Why not? Rip out those internal combustion engines, recycle them, break them down, you know, reuse the materials, but avoid any use for fossil fuel petrol. Sounds wonderful, right? The guy who's running that project is great, and I think that project is so inspiring, and I think it's a kind of a case study in leadership. Um, so how do you lead in other areas or how do you kind of overcome conflict, uh, within groups, especially over such a, a topic as climate, which really gets our passions up. It riles us up. Um, luckily there is a new podcast from the group work center, which is, uh, I think going on its second decade now as a, a center to teach the skills of facilitation and collaborative decision-making and how to work through conflicts. And the new podcast is called Facilitate This. I've had the great pleasure and honor of being a small part of the team who has put this together. It sounds remarkable. The content is excellent. There's eight episodes in total, and they're about close to halfway through the release of them now. So now's a great time to jump on board. And here's a brief excerpt from a chat with Jim Buckle, the showrunner for the series about um, the collaborative decision-making process and its skills that anyone involved in any group, but especially climate, will uh, be able to apply.
1: What we're talking about when we talk about collaborative leadership and facilitation is the ability to manage conflict and to ease our way through uh, disagreement. Yeah, Because when we're passionate people, it's inevitable there will be a degree of conflict. It's not a bad thing. It's how we get through it and how we manage it collaboratively that is key. And what we found working with groups across a range of areas over many, many years is that often people lack these skills because they're not intrinsically taught and they're not intrinsically part of the modern day culture because we somehow let that side of things slip. So we provide hopefully a degree of skills that help people to manage things in a way that is truly collaborative
0: and think think about it when was the last time that as part of your job or your life you know outside of maybe the realms of a relationship that you're in uh, that you actually thought about reaching a decision collaboratively where Everyone at the end of the day agrees on it. Not that you were outvoted and have to go along with it, not that you made your best effort but weren't listened to, but actually participated, actually came to the point where you accepted the decision, even if it wasn't all of what you wanted, and carried on with it, that you were okay with it. Um, it's definitely not a way of thinking and a skill set we are taught in school or in our lives for the most part. So, I highly recommend you check out Facilitate This. Uh, I think we're not going to reach a lot of climate solutions without... Well, we're not going to reach a level of justice and fairness in the climate solutions we embrace and we start to enact without that level of collaboration and collaborative leadership. So worth checking that that series out for sure. And I thought it was, it was very much on topic for this month. Sadly, this month um i couldn't keep it all positive and i i have definitely i've put this off playing this clip a few times now but i think it is time to kind of let the experts uh people who do a very good job talking every day sadly about uh just bedlam and chaos and disruption the excellent newscasters at the BBC tell us just what july meant in many places in the world. And for that, we go to BBC's, that uh, the excellent BBC World Series show, The Climate Question.
4: And I wonder, has there been any political fallout from the heatwave where you are, Neil? What with so many deaths, and with the emergency services so overstretched?
5: Yeah, there has. The opposition has called the government's response ineffective, and it wants an independent review. The government has promised to hire more paramedics and emergency dispatch operators, and to learn lessons. The the, the big lesson coming out of of the past number of days is that the climate crisis is not a fiction. It is absolutely real. And if you look... John uh, Horgan, the Premier uh, of British Columbia. uh, We now uh, are absolutely clear that climate change is affecting us in ways that uh, we hadn't yet imagined. This is not a British Columbia problem. It's not a Canada problem. It is a global challenge. And we all need to have citizens of the world... What he didn't say was that his government relies on hundreds of millions of dollars of fossil fuel revenues mainly from coal and natural gas, to really address the climate crisis. They're going to have to look at that.
4: And what's happening with carbon emissions there?
5: Well, the most recent official audit shows British Columbia's overall emissions are still going up.
4: Which the science tells us makes extreme weather events like this heatwave more likely. Bob says people really need to begin to connect
2: the dots. I often wonder how many deaths we will have to see before people start taking notice How many do we have to see? Five, 10,000? I mean, it's a terrible, terrible thing to say you need five or 10,000 deaths before people start waking up to this problem. It's a bleak
5: prognosis. But, you know, as we've seen with COVID, numbers matter. Big headline numbers grab the public's attention and can possibly force change.
4: Right. And for decades, we've got to remember that scientists have been warning about a possible pandemic. But it took the huge mortality rates over the past year and a half for it finally to be taken seriously.
5: Yeah, may well be the same with heatwaves.
4: So, Neil, what have you seen in climate news this week?
5: Well, those who pay attention to Europe will have seen this huge plan to tackle climate change from the EU. It's being put forward by bureaucrats for politicians to approve. They claim it will put Europe on track to become the first carbon-neutral continent by the middle of the century. The plan is called Fit for 55, and the aim is to cut the EU's carbon emissions by 55% from 1990 levels by 2030. And if all that sounds abstract, Bloomberg News helpfully summarizes it, quote... The transformation will impact every single thing that you can think of. There's money for boosting energy efficiency. There's money for switching to renewables. There's money for planting 3 billion trees by the end of the decade. I could go on and on. The Wall Street Journal calls it a legislative hydra and notes it will still need to be approved by the EU's 27 national governments, which are already having money troubles thanks to the pandemic. So getting approval could take a long time, the paper warns. And at least one EU citizen is unimpressed. Greta Thunberg says the plan needs to be torn up because it doesn't go far enough.
4: What about you? Mine's got a bit of, uh, of that dose of doom in it, Neil. Um- there's a report out this week that significant parts of the Amazon rainforests, the world's largest tropical forests, have started to emit more carbon dioxide than they can absorb. And the southeast of the Amazon is worst affected, say scientists, with higher rates of tree loss and an increasing number of fires. And this news appeared in a journal called Nature, one of the most respected scientific journals out there. And that's terrible, obviously, because we used to rely on the Amazon rainforest to capture a lot of the excess CO2 in the air. It's known as a carbon sink. But actually what's happening now, it seems to be changing its role, becoming a carbon emitter rather than a carbon absorber. How do they know that? Well, they have these researchers who use aircraft to, which are fitted with sensors and they take around 600 air samples above selected parts of the rainforest uh, over the past 10 years or so they've been doing that. It's a huge area. I mean, we're talking about 6 million square kilometres, but they've been having these sort of aircraft go around picking up measurements over parts of the rainforest. So they use these small planes to measure CO2 levels up to four and a half kilometres above the forest over the last decade. And... The results show just how the whole of the Amazon is changing. They used to do this using satellite imagery, but that's often hampered by cloud cover. So this research method was more reliable, more accurate. Uh, But yeah, the results are not very
0: encouraging. But it's very cool to know just how that works. And indeed, you can't start talking about solutions to anyone without giving them a hefty dose of urgency unless they're already saying from the same hymn sheet that you are so I'm just going to quickly drop in a track here if I can there we go Um, so why I wanted to play that clip in particular was it's great hearing the BBC talk about climate change Um, that show in particular The Climate Question is a very very good one Uh, It's fascinating to hear the mayor of Vancouver very, very publicly say this is the climate crisis. It is here. This is the effects we're feeling. And I'm very happy they pointed out that he does receive his his province, his city receives a huge amount of income from fossil fuel companies that are mining and extracting in British Columbia. Um, The Amazon becoming a net a net emitter of carbon is shocking. That should be a very clear wake-up call to anyone in doubt as to the severity of the climate crisis already in 2021, much less in future. And knowing that how exactly they calculate that is that actually you know a small plane flying around taking atmospheric air samples above the Amazon rainforest. It's uh, It ties up in a very neat little bow for any doubters or cynics or skeptics in your life why it's so serious, how we know it's so serious, and that leads into the solutions we need. And one of those is a huge solution. It's one we are definitely talking about in Victoria. We're talking about New South Wales. And we're also talking about it here in New Zealand, and that is the offshore wind industry. Now, what do you get when you create wind turbines that are 30, 40 stories tall that are the blades or the wingspan of a 747? You get a lot of power production, and you, of course, get a lot of controversy about where these are placed, what negative effects they have, and who's bankrolling it and who's standing to benefit Windfall is a fantastic five-part miniseries, investigative series from New Hampshire Public Radio, from Outside In, one of the earliest climate-engaged podcasts in the world. I had the great privilege of getting to speak to the co-host of the miniseries and the senior producer, and it was really cool to be contacted by people in the States who thought that Climactic would make a great place to hear that story and get it told so in case you're not all podcast nerds uh i do have a little intro here to explain why this is a a kind of a big deal uh what these people's bona fides are and why i was like a kid on christmas morning getting to speak to them so you're going to hear a short little intro from me and then i'll pop back it to explain the clip This show is for the climate community, those who are aware of, engaged with, concerned about, uh, basically doing anything about the climate crisis. It's not necessarily for podcast nerds. But if you're anything like me, the acronyms PRX or NHPR or NPR make you excited. And today, in this episode, I'm like a kid on Christmas morning because I got to speak to two people from NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio, who work on a show called Outside In, distributed on PRX, the public radio exchange. And even better than talking to the people who make the stuff I listen to, they make a climate show, and a damn good one. In this episode, you're going to hear all about this new miniseries called Windfall, and of course, you're going to want to check it out. So please find a link to windfall, which is on the outside in feed, right at the top of the show notes. And you're going to want to stick around for this whole hour of talking podcasts, climate, storytelling, and how we can engage with this new clean energy revolution that's happening around us. And that's finally, finally happening in the U.S. And what we here in Australia and New Zealand can learn from it and apply. All right, settle in. Headphones on. Enjoy. So you can hear I was very, very excited about this. I'm really happy with how it came out. So what you're about to hear is a clip from near the end of that episode. I highly recommend you listen to the whole thing. It's on the Climactic feed. It is a longer one. It's close to an hour. But um, I put a lot of of editing into it. It is to the point. There's not a lot of waffling. Um, You're going to hear from Annie Ropeak, who's the co-host of the series, and Jack Rodolico, the senior producer, and this is about, yeah, the offshore wind industry and sort of the angle they approached it from and just the facts around it for them, uh, what it's like as a publicly, you know, a public radio production about a solution to the climate crisis and when it's scale. It's It's remarkably and refreshingly factual. They don't have to get into emotionality or asking you to consider what the future will be like this is straight up reporting this is like reporting like they would on a political race or a school board this is it's almost it's it's so refreshing that like you can now approach a climate topic in a traditional not boring because it's not but like just like it's any other type of economic thing because it is but there's no there's no false equivalence. There's no ambiguity. It's just there's a climate crisis. It's happening now. What are we going to do about it? And let's talk about who's going to win, who's going to lose, why here, why now, what's happening. All right. Here's the clip. This is the last clip I'm going to play you for this episode of climactic curation. So I'll talk to you again briefly afterwards. But please enjoy. And if you enjoy this, please do go listen to the whole thing. It's fantastic.
6: I remember at the beginning of one of the CNN presidential debates, they were doing like live updates of those fires during the debate, which just felt totally new and like unheard of for climate journalism to be that sort of front and center. So I think that it is still incredibly divisive, but it's also something has changed in the past couple of years where... It's it's more normal to talk about it. It's not niche anymore. Maybe still a little bit niche in like TV journalism in the states. I would say you are not hearing them say the words I think as often as you are in newspapers and um, radio and digital media. But the dominoes are continuing to fall, and um, the you know idea of what objectivity means for climate change has completely shifted in a you know, for the better in a way that allows us to say facts like climate change is real, it's happening, et cetera, with journalistic certitude in a way that I couldn't like three years ago. I mean, I did, but I would have to defend them really actively to our audience. And it's just like, they don't, they don't ask about it anymore. There's a couple, you know, the, the core group of denialists will still ask about it, but you don't have to, to think about them as much anymore. It's sort of become acceptable.
0: Yeah that has less power than it used to.
6: Yeah, which is, which is gratifying and, and encouraging. So that shift is still happening, but it's good, I think.
0: You know, th- As you're saying that, Annie, what occurred to me is like um, bringing it back to, to windfall, to this podcast series. Um, climate change in this series is kind of like, uh, th- I think that's one of the good things about covering offshore wind in this way is it's not a change that's relying on Congress passing a law it's you know and so it's just happening because the economics work the offshore wind industry is getting up to speed it's building up a head of steam on america's east coast especially in the northeast and the fact is just an economic certainty is so refreshing after the very brief amount of time I've been watching this space, been concerned about it, been a part of it. Um, I can't imagine people who've been in climate for 10 or 20 years and been unable to see for for going on two decades, three decades more, uh, that level of just like lack of politicization, the the level of just certitude and fact that, This is happening. We're going to do something about it. Here's what we're going to do. Let's go. Um, Please do listen to Windfall. Listen to that episode. It's remarkable. You'll really enjoy it. So what I'm going to do, one last thing. Those of you probably missed it at the beginning when I had just started the live stream, I'm going to play the Climactic Network promo. Uh, This will come through just fine in audio for you folks who are listening to the episode. Um, But... I just want to say thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to shows on the Climactic Collective. If you yourself want to get involved in audio storytelling around the climate crisis, or you know anyone that does, please just send them our way. We are hello at climactic.fm. Love getting messages from you. Let us know what you think. Let us know if there's any episodes you've heard that we should have featured. I'm really happy that everything you've heard tonight except for the BBC clip has been an episode on the climactic feed on the climactic collective, something we produced as volunteers doing this in our free time. Uh, It's I'm immensely proud of it. And all the members of the group doing phenomenal work, getting better and better, building their skills, becoming spokespeople, becoming media creators. Um, There's of course, we all know it. There's, there's power in the media. It takes, good stories to do good things, you know, we need to really show people that there's, there is hope and there's reasons to act on climate right now. And we can't just always hit the doom button over and over again, even though I absolutely admit that I've been a bit of a doomer this last month because the facts and the reality kind of made me one Um, But, yeah, the solutions focus this month came at just the right time for me, and hopefully it's helped you as well. So I will play this little video for you and then bid you adieu. Uh, Thank you again for joining me. Thanks again for listening to Climactic. The Climactic The Climactic Collective